probably the two most recognisable musical notes in popular culture. And an inevitable intro to our Monday expert segment. Sharks. Some of the oldest species on the planet. Some of the most misrepresented in mainstream media. And Andrew Stewart has dedicated his life to learning about and protecting sharks and other sea life. He spent 41 years... It says here at the Museum of New Zealand, Te Papa Tongarewa, although by my recollection, Te Papa was only open 26 years ago. We'll ask about that in a moment. Anyway, that's where he's curator of natural history. He's their shark expert, and he's the co-author of a landmark encyclopedia, The Fishes of New Zealand, which came out in 2015. Most recently, he's been involved in a new kids' book called Mangor, Sharks and Rays of Aotearoa. It comes out later this week. It would be a great gift for the shark lover in your household. If you have shark questions for Andrew, you can text them on 2101. He joins me now. Hi, Andrew. Hi, Jesse. Yeah, we better get this timeline right, timeline right first of all. You've been <laughs> 41 years at the Museum of New Zealand, but it only became to Papa Partway along that track. I, that I was at the old National Museum Were you? before that. And yeah, gosh. So, yes, up on the hill. How did you end up being a shark specialist? Well, sharks are fishes, and I've just had an absolute fascination with fishes since I was about three or four. How did you get involved? Yeah, just from there. How did you get involved? Sorry, we've got a delay, which is going to undo me, Andrew. I'm, I apologise for oh. interrupting. I'll do my best not to. Um, and this new book, Mangor, is written by Ned Barode, who's been on our show a few times before with his excellent New Zealand um, books inspired by the natural world. How did you get involved with that one? Um, through the first book that you mentioned, The Fishes of New Zealand, and I'd worked with Ned before on his Rockpool seashore books. And Michael Upchurch, who's one of the publishers with Te Papa Press, emailed me and said, Ned wants to do a book on sharks. Would I be interested in, in joining in and, and helping out? And I said, yeah, love to. Um, let's meet up and have a coffee and kick this around. And so we did. And the rest is, well, as I say, history. What makes a shark a shark? From a biologist's point of view, it's a, um, a chordate, an animal with a backbone, uh, that has primarily cartilage. It has between five and seven gill openings. And... Um, there are other sort of more um, specialised interpretations, but for the layperson, that's a pretty good um, sort of reference. Before Jaws, were people afraid of sharks? I think they always were. I think Jaws just helped bring that into focus. And um, But I think we became more acutely aware once that movie um, hit the screens, you know, you go swimming in the evening or um, sometimes the joke when you when you go off the side of a boat is dirt. Yeah. And, but I know um, Peter Blenchley wrote the book. He regretted writing the book afterwards. He said it became the excuse for wholesale unwarranted slaughter of these animals out of unjustified fear, really. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like crime – the perception uh, doesn't always line up with reality. I mean, how common are shark attacks? Extremely rare. You're much more likely to be injured or killed in the car driving to or from the beach 
than you are ever going to be injured or killed by a shark. I mean, dogs uh, attacks um, are responsible for more deaths each year around the world than, than shark attacks. Nonetheless, you must understand um, there is something about sharks. Maybe it's that they look so, I was going to say evil, that's probably not quite the right word, but they look, um, <laughs> what is the word? What is the word? Menacing? I think there is a, there's a fear of being eaten alive, I think is what it is. Uh-huh. Uh, if, you, if you're out, um, we don't have them obviously, but if, say, say you're tramping in, in the woods in Canada or Alaska and um, you see a large grizzly bear, the bear sees you and roars and attacks and, um, you know, you've got those few seconds before the thing hits you. And um, But these large carnivores will often kill their prey before uh, eating them. There's this fear with sharks that they eat you alive. <laughs> but, um, the average size of a shark is, is around about a bit under a metre. If you take all the species worldwide and average yeah. them out, the very biggest sharks are the ones that eat the very smallest things. They're, all three of them are plankton eaters. Um, in terms of New Zealand, we have three of what they call the big four, which are the, obviously the great white, the tiger, and the oceanic white tip. But the most dangerous shark of all we don't have, which is the bull shark. With this book, we're hoping, Ned and I are both hoping, that we can, I guess, um, get a new generation of children to think differently about these apex predators because they are so very important to a healthy seed. Uh, someone who's listening sent me a text. They say, I quite often see seven gill sharks when I dive. Are they dangerous? They certainly seem very curious. Mm. The uh, I've had all my years of diving, I've had two what I could call negative um, interrelationships with sharks. Um, one was a seven gill of Open Bay Island. Um, I'd done a dive we were collecting. I was doing what they, we call a safety stop, which is a routine 10-minute pause at three metres depth. And uh, I got bored. So I went and looked in a hole to see if there are any lobsters in there. And next second, I'm being rolled sideways as this Ooh. thing bounces off my tank wow. and I get back in the boat and I'm told yeah they do that out here uh, <laughs> seven gills um, will um, become very persistent they have been implemented in attacks on people they are large enough to be um, um, cause significant damage and even fatalities but um, in those cases I just sort of say well Keep an eye on it, and um, if it starts to become persistent, get out of the water. Any other tips for swimming near sharks? Or just heard from one person who has a, I don't know if they're taking the mickey or not, but they say they have a daily ocean swim around Bowentown. Um, and it's been the site of a couple of high-profile sightings and attacks in recent years. Do you have tips for swimming when sharks might be around? Well, the, the stats seem to indicate that um, evening and morning, dusk and dawn, are, and obviously overnight, uh, probably times when you shouldn't be in the water um, if this is what you're wanting. But really and truly, the only guaranteed way of never encountering a shark while you're swimming 
is to swim at the local swimming pool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there must be something else you can tell us that, <laughs> <laughs> to improve our chances, well, apart from not swimming. I have logged um, hundreds, if not thousands, of dives, work dives, recreational dives. Um, that one instance at um, Open Bay Island, um, I've encountered dogfish and semingill sharks, uh, little carpet sharks, rather, while I've been diving. They're harmless, and I've had um, Galapagos sharks, my one trip up to the Kermadex. So in all those dives I've done in Fiordland, Stewart Island, the Chatham Islands, if there have been sharks there, I've never seen them. And if they've, if they've been aware of me, then they weren't interested in me. Sharks aren't out there looking around for the next leg to chew on. They might chew on you. They're going, mm, that was the wrong bit of food, yuck, or whatever. But they're not um, out there gunning for us, which sadly is not true the other way. And we kill thousands and thousands of sharks every day, accidentally as bycatch, and sometimes, you know, deliberately targeted for meat and fins. And um, if we remove too many of these from the ecosystem, then we can expect the ecosystem to collapse. Peter wants to know, speaking of collapse, what happened to our basking sharks? He reckons he used to see them frequently, and then he thinks about the mid-'90s, maybe 1995, they just seemed to disappear. Mm. Yes, there's lots of photographs of them washing up on the shore. They get stranded or whatever. Um, it's a strange one. I, I can't really answer that. It might be climate change. It might be accidental um, bycatch in trawls, although they're so big they generally go straight through a trawl net. Um, so this might be something which we have to sort of keep an eye on. I've heard... Um, Conversely, increased number of sightings of whale sharks around northern New Zealand. Tell us about whale sharks. Well, most of your listeners will know this is the biggest fish in the world. It's the um, it's a gentle giant. It's one of the plankton eaters, and um, they are actually the source of uh, huge revenue creation for eco diving. Tourists just love diving with them because these massive, massive fish just sort of hang there and, and um, they're just awe-inspiring and, and when you see them in the water. I've only ever seen photographs. I haven't been lucky enough to dive with them yet. Someone wants to know if you've ever seen a white pointer while diving. Never, never. And that's even, you know, diving at the Chathams, diving in Fjordland, diving... Um, throughout, yes, around Stewart Island, diving off Kaikoura. Um I've never actually seen one, not even been in the boat when I've seen one in the boat. So, no, I'd love to. Hey, crayfish holes must be a bit of a spot. Hayden says he's seen a, a video of a diver looking at a hole for a crayfish, and unbeknownst to the diver, he didn't realise there was a large seven-gill shark trying to look in the same hole. He reckons you can actually hear the camera operator's laughter on on the when the diver turned around to see the sharks eye beside him. Sounds pretty similar to what you went through. Yes. Yeah, I think that shark probably still has a headache from the power that it hit my tank. A couple of people um, 
wanted to know about bronze whalers. We see lots of them in mm-hmm. the Bay of Islands close to the inshore. Uh, do they often attack, asks Kent, on 2101. Bronze whalers as a specific species, which is um, the scientific name, uh, Carcharhinus brachiurus. Uh, spear fishermen call them the tax collectors because um, they've become very attuned to the sound of a, of a spear gun going off or a fish being speared. And they will turn up. You've done the hard work, and they will say thank you very much and help themselves Gosh. fish at the end of your spear. <laughs> um, looking at the dentition of bronze whalers, they are fish eaters, fish and squid. Um, a really big one, if it grabbed you, you'd be in trouble. You'd, you'd have a, quite a bad bite. But generally speaking, these are specific fish hunters. Uh, someone else, by the way, I'm talking to Andrew Stewart from uh, Te Papa on sharks. What are your thoughts on cage diving at Stewart Island? This has been a bit of a contentious one. Mm. Yes, the um, it, it, it's... Uh, on one hand, it sort of potentially generates income for the island, um, but the downside is that um, sharks, uh, white sharks, become um, to learn to associate the sound of a of a um, outboard motor with um, some chum being put in the water, and there are a lot of divers around the island who free dive for power uh, commercially. So that that was a huge tension. I understand that the cage diving has had to move further away and uh, away from the island itself. Tell me what you're talking about when you mention bycatch and its dangers, uh, danger to sharks. The uh, bycatch is, is a general term that we put uh, towards things that are taken either in a trawl or on a line that are not the species you're targeting. So it can be things like starfish and sea cucumbers and bits of coral, little wee species of fish that don't get bigger than the size of your finger, um, and obviously sharks. Um, New Zealand has banned the finning of sharks for export. So the trouble with particularly um, sharks is that for all their power and strength, they are actually quite delicate animals. they don't survive often being caught in a trawl. And if they are held or immobilized in any way on a long line, they can often um, get into a sort of stress situation and die. So um, a lot of the fishermen are sort of – I know they're not keen on, on, on catching them. Uh, one or two of the tuna long linemen have told me, oh, if we bring a shark to the side of the boat, we just reach down with long-handled um, – bolt cutters and shear the hook as close as we can and let the shark swim off, which I think is is a fantastic attitude, whereas in the past maybe they would have put it on board and killed it. Mm. Um, I was out of my kayak fishing uh, over the last summer and spotted a shark. I couldn't tell what sort of shark, but what really struck me was the way it was swimming was different to anything that I'd seen. It was the the fin straight up and then the uh, the back tail sort of um, sideways left and right. Could you talk to us a bit about the physiology of a shark and, and you know, what makes a shark a shark in the water, how it moves and that sort of thing? That mm. depends on where the shark lives. So not all sharks are the same and not all sharks are these great big um, power machines that 
that barrel through the water a great number of kilometers per hour. Uh, most people, when they think of a shark like that, it'll be a mako or a great white, a bronze whaler, what blue shark. One of these ones that is a an open ocean pelagic species. So they've got uh, powerful tails there. Their fins are designed to um, enable lift so they're not sinking. They can turn quickly. There are, there are some species of shark, and you look at them and you go, can you swim at all? Uh, little bramble sharks <laughs> and the prickly dogfish. Prickly dogfish is triangular in cross-section. If you catch one, you can sit it on the deck and it doesn't fall over. And, and it's just a little blob with a square tail and a great big high sail fin and, and the most <laughs> ridiculous little head and mouth. Yeah, and um, you you sort of think, yeah, downhill with a tailwind. I think you'd need, <laughs> and they just hop along the seabed. Um, yet they seem to be able to get up and get around. I've just been sent a paper on which I'm a co-author describing a new deep water cat shark, and this is a fairly muscular looking uh, animal until you get to the tail region, when it just sort of comes almost like it's been put in a giant pencil sharpener. There's hardly <laughs> anything there. Yeah. The tail is tiny, and it seems to be using its second dorsal fin and anal fin as a as a an auxiliary tail, um, because the the tail is just really piddly and small. So um, they come in, yeah they come in all shapes and sizes. Some are, are speed kings. Others are just can sort of set up to swim slowly, um, using minimal energy and creating minimal disturbances. The deepwater cat sharks are a classic example of those. They've got long tails. They're almost like an eel when they mm. swim. Each one uniquely built for its own environment and uh, mm. and and purpose and, and, and prey, I suppose. Um, do you have a favourite type of shark, Andrew? I have a real fondness for a group of sharks known as sleeper sharks. Yeah. Uh, these are deep water sharks. They include some of the deepest living sharks in the world. Uh, the Portuguese dogfish is one of them, taken almost down to the abyssal plain. They um, they are weird. They include the giant Antarctic and Arctic sleeper sharks, which uh, a few years ago were found, the, the Arctic sleeper shark was found to be the oldest living vertebrate in the world that um, one that had been um, aged had hatched out of its egg when um, I think um, James I came on the throne of England. Wow. So that gives you some idea of how long these, these fish can live for. So how old would that be then, my um, British about, monarch about history? 400 years old. About 400 years. Really? Yeah. That's insane. Well, that must be just about the oldest living thing on the planet. Oh, no. No, the invertebrates beat us hands down. Um, There are glass sponges that have been aged. (laughs) I think in deep water off Taiwan, one has been aged 15,000 years old. That doesn't count, surely. That's just like a like a mold. It's isn't a sponge. It? It's an animal. It's an animal, Jesse. <laughs> None <laughs> needs eyes and a mouth and some sense of identity. Surely. <laughs> now you're being speciesist. <laughs> <laughs> unashamedly, unashamedly. <laughs> um, tell us about your collection at the Papa. So our collection is uh, around about sixty four thousand lots of fish, and. Um, that sounds like a lot, but it's the size of a, a teaching collection at a big American university. 
However, we have the largest collection of large specimens in the world. And uh, most of these have been donated to us by either the seafood industry or through NIWA, Ministry of Fisheries before that, um, fisheries observers, recreational anglers go out and catch things. So our job, our mandate is to describe and catalogue the flora and fauna of New Zealand. And we do that using specimens and a variety of tools. Uh, my colleague is just going across the way. He's going to be explaining a whole lot of materials. We can compare uh, internally structures and, and the like. The latest tool, obviously, is genetics, which is enabling us to find what we call cryptic species, where we thought that was just a bit of variation on a theme. But no, the genes are saying this is actually a completely different species that has mm -hmm. nothing to do with the thing you thought it was. Um, so we did, did that, hold did these that stuff species. arrive mid-career for you, the, the DNA, the genetic stuff? Very much, yeah. yes. And I'm an old dog, and that's a new trick. So I tend to sort of struggle a bit. I rely on my colleague Lara for that. Um, but it's, it's a very useful tool. Um, I'm what they call a morphologist. I like to look at it and go, what does it look like? Mm. Um, but we hold these collections, wet and dry specimens, for the nation. So I tell people we're a bit like librarians. But instead of books, we've got preserved animals and plants. Oh, you just dropped out there. Can you say that uh, uh, after li librarians? What did you say? Sorry. We're, we're a bit like librarians, we, we, but we have um, preserved animals and plants rather than books. Yeah. The, the wet specimens sound interesting. So how do you actually keep them so they don't deteriorate? So we put them through a series of chemical baths. The first is a bath of formalin. And any of your listeners who have had a farming background will know what this is. It's a particularly nasty chemical that kills bacteria and fungi. It also um, alters the proteins of um, animals so that they don't um, disintegrate. But because it's such a nasty chemical, uh, we can't store it long-term in formalin. So after about a month in formalin, we then transfer it to increasing concentrations of alcohol. So for our very biggest specimens and drums and tanks, we use isopropyl alcohol. And for our jar-sized specimens, we use ethyl alcohol. And they then have, they have labels attached, and the labels are associated numbers with the database that tell us where and when and how the specimen was got. So we can go back again and again and look at material using new techniques, the same material. What size is your largest shark? My largest fish in the collection is actually a shark. It's a three-meter, 400-kilogram sleeper shark Whew. from off the Auckland Islands. Um, just encourage listeners to look around and, and kind of imagine three meters in the room and, and how big that shark must be. And then how would you store that damn thing? I've got a very large tank. Yeah. And <laughs> we have a gantry to lift it in and out. We have a gantry to lift the lid. So um, the really big material we have um, in New Zealand, at this particular museum, we've come up with some of the best solutions in the world for actually storing material. Do you get visiting scientists and, and shark enthusiasts coming to see your collection? Yes. And, in fact, in November, we have the Indo-Pacific Fish Conference 
in Auckland, and we have a number of, of scientists coming down to spend time with us both before and after the conference. Uh, and then before and after the conference, I have to do some work with the Ministry of Fisheries uh, scientific observers going down to Antarctica, and then the new tranche of new observers that are being trained. So they come, they will come here and actually work on uh, fresh specimens out of the freezer. Are you still? I know you've been responsible for growing that fish's collection. I think you've just about quadrupled it in the time you're there. Are you still working on it? Oh yes. There are huge swathes of the New Zealand marine environment that have not been sampled. Uh, over eighty percent of our survey and trawl work has been done on the top thousand meters of water, because this has all been driven by commercial imperatives. So we're seeking to try and get funding from various organisations to be able to put the gear down to below 1,500 metres. The abyssal plain, 4,000 to 6,000 metres, virtually untouched around New Zealand. Um, thanks to Alan Jamieson and his crew with the Haydeep work, we um, managed to get some sampling done up in the Kermadeep Trench. And in fact, we got a juvenile sleeper shark on that trip, which is probably at its maximum depth for sharks, taken in one of the traps. Is there much down there? It's such a vast area, it almost doesn't matter. It depends how you define much. Uh, the mud is full of bacteria and sponges. There are little worms. There are crustaceans. There are, sort of, um, yes, what, I guess you could call the sandhoppers from hell. Um so densities of fishes gets quite low. Um, sharks are not found on the abyssal plate. So around about 3,000 metres is about the maximum depth that sharks can be taken to. That is pretty deep though, right? 3,000 metres. Yes, but the average depth of the world's oceans is 4,000 metres. Is it? God. Yep. <laughs> and in fact, if you look at the planet properly... You know, we, you know that the three quarters of the of the surface of the globe is water, but over ninety percent of it is ocean. If you take into account the fact that things live in the water column, mm. and um, the average, um, I guess, bathymetry of this planet is twelve hundred meters deep. So, if you were to get an almighty bulldozer and smooth the whole planet out, it would be a blue ball twelve hundred meters deep. Can you say that one more time? If you were to take all the mountains, hills, all the dry land and push it into the sea and average all the depths out to the one depth, it would be a single blue marble in, the, in space. Twelve hundred. The water would be 1,200 metres deep. <laughs> uh, I hope our listeners have managed to do that. I think I've got it. It's, um, it's been Just really do it nice. in your head. Imagine <laughs> in your head. Don't do it for real, please. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's been really good to talk to you today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What's the best way of ordinary people um, making the most of our shark collection at Te Papa? Oh, well, we've got this lovely book, uh, Mangu, The uh, Sharks and Rays of Aotearoa. It's a, it's a great read for, um, for kids. Um, and the actual collection itself, is it's a highly specialised collection. It's a bit like uh, a medical library. It's not like the public library. So... Access to it actually requires you need to come in with a project and be doing something, not just sort of coming in and show me a shark. 
Okay. I'm um, going to have to cut you so, off there, Andrew. We're coming up to the news. Yeah. But uh, Mango is a good start. The new kids book. I've been talking to Andrew Stewart from Te Papa on our Monday expert segment.